0: Anna Lemke is chief of Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. This is Anna Lemke. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank*. Uh, all right. I'm here with Anna Lemke. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, So you are uh, an expert in addiction. You've written uh, a book called uh, Drug Dealer MD about the opioid epidemic. And more recently, you wrote a book uh, called Dopamine Nation. And I really want to get into the second book in particular uh, and the topics it addresses. And maybe just so we're all on the same page here, uh, could you tell us what what dopamine actually is? I, I hear this a lot. Is it just pleasure or what is it?
1: Well, it's a chemical that we make in our brain. It's a neurotransmitter, which means that it bridges that gap between neurons. Neurons are the cells that send the electrical impulses that create the circuits that make us who we are. But interestingly, neurons don't touch. There's a little space end to end called the synapse. And that synapse is bridged by molecules called neurotransmitters. So dopamine is one of many brain neurotransmitters. It's the most important neurotransmitter for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing uh, substances and behaviors.
0: Okay, and and you mentioned pleasure in there, and something that you've talked about before is that how pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain, and that these are kind of like two sides of the same, same coin. Right. And heard you say that like any deviation basically from the this balance of, of homeostasis uh, can be stressful, which sounds counterintuitive. Like how, how could pleasure possibly be stressful?
1: Yeah, that's great. So the literal definition of stress in biology is any deviation from homeostasis. Homeostasis is our physiologic baseline. So I like to use this metaphor of a beam on a central fulcrum, like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. But when the the, the teeter-totter in this case is at rest, then that, that beam is parallel with the ground. Um, so neither side is touching, that's homeostasis, that's the level baseline. And any deviation to the pleasure side or to the pain side of that balance is the definition of stress. Uh, and one of the over arching rules governing this balance or really all physiologic systems in all living organisms is the drive to return to homeostasis. So with any deviation from neutrality, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the work that the brain is doing to restore homeostasis does send a signal to our own adrenaline, which is our stress hormone to release a certain amount of adrenaline. So it is literally stressful in the sense that it kicks off, kicks off our own adrenaline.
0: Okay, so that, that was what I was curious about. Like, um, I I've, again, I don't know very much about brain science, but I hear things like cortisol being a, a, a stress hormone. Is that yes. also in the mix here?
1: Yes, so cortisol, adrenaline, those are all roughly equivalents. And this is primarily the work of neuroscientist George Kube, showing that as uh, with a deviation, so if you ingest something like cocaine, right, it, it releases a lot of dopamine in the specific circuit of the brain called the reward pathway. And uh, immediately the brain responds to that by downregulating you know, endogenous or internal production of dopamine and dopamine receptors to try to bring it back down to homeostasis. But the other thing that happens during the work of trying to do that is that we release adrenaline or cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And that's the work of George Kube showing that it is like, there's a link between that process and uh, a literal stress reaction. So it's stressful to mm-hmm. deviate from homeostasis, whether or not you're deviation, deviating to the pleasure side or the pain side.
0: So does that mean there's really no like ever unmixed pleasure or pain, it's always going to have some combination or some stressful component to it.
1: I think the way of, so first of all, the, this this pleasure pain balance is, is an oversimplification of our experience. Like you can experience pleasure and pain at the same time, for example, when eating spicy foods or, you know, just to throw it out there, like say to masochistic sexual encounters, right? So there, there's a mixture. But the interesting thing is that in general, Uh, these are opposites and there's no pleasure without cost because the way that the brain restores homeostasis is not just to bring it back to baseline, but first to tip an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So if, if you smoke pot, you'll get a release of dopamine, you'll get a deviation of the pleasure side, but then these neuroadaptation gremlins will hop on the pain side to bring it level again. And they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down the hangover or what neuroscientists call the, the opponent process reaction. You know, in a matter of seconds to minutes to days, you know, those gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored, but we pay a price for every pleasure. And the more extreme, the pleasure, the higher the cost physiologically. Mm.
0: And, and you, you mentioned pot as well in there. And a lot of people, especially as we talk about legalization of it, a lot of people sort of I think go too far and say like, Oh, this is a a non-habit forming drug, but clearly basically it sounds like what you're saying is anything, any process that is releasing dopamine is going to have, it's going to have some effect in your brain. It's going to have some sort of withdrawal. Is that basically true?
1: So if you start out with a level balance and you deviate to the side of pleasure and do something that releases dopamine, you will pay a price and that price will be the hangover the come down the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true for cannabis. It's true for watching a Netflix uh, series, um, you know, after each episode that kind of like, Oh man, should should we watch another one? No, we said we wouldn't, but I kind of really want to. Right. On the other hand, if you think about hunger, hunger is a little bit different. Hunger is the absence of a reinforcer that we need to survive. And so with hunger, what you get is a deviation to the pain side, right? So that's a a sort of a natural deviation that's gonna then drive the organism to do the work to find food. And when you find food, as long as it's not full of salt, fat, and sugar, but just restores the balance, then you get dopamine without having to pay a cost because you paid it up front with hunger. Does that make
0: sense? I, yeah. And so I guess that would also lead into sort of another point, which is that, uh, and, and something I want to talk to you about is the the easy access to pleasure right. in modern life. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that if you can incur a cost to begin with before you get your, your pleasure, your dopamine, then that could actually just bring you to homeostasis and, right. and not cause this sort of withdrawal or, you know, pain as the pleasure recedes.
1: Right. And, and that's what this pleasure pain balance evolved for. Right. So we evolved, first of all, this, this, this reward circuit has remained unchanged over millions of years of evolution and across species. And it's what's allowed us to survive and thrive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, which is what the world has been for most of human existence. The problem is that we now live in this world of overwhelming abundance. We have easy access to all kinds of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, even previously sort of healthy and adaptive things that we didn't think of as drugs, like food, like sex, have now become drugified uh, so that, you know, even these behaviors you can get addicted to. And getting back to the balance, this is the second rule of the balance, which is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, that initial response to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, the gremlins start to accumulate on the pain side of balance. Pretty soon there's enough gremlins on that pain side to fill this whole room. They're camped out there, tents and barbecues in tow. And now we've essentially changed our hedonic set point, right? Now we need an enormous amount of pleasure, not to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. Modest pleasures no longer do the trick because they don't outweigh all of the gremlins that are camped out on the pain side. And when we're not using, that balance is tilted harshly to the side of pain and we're experiencing the universal sense of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. And that's essentially what happens when people get addicted.
0: I see. Would the reverse be true? As in, if you get really used to pain, that any amount of pleasure would become much more uh, rewarding?
1: Right. So that's exactly what happens. And it's called the science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And there's a whole branch of science showing that if you expose cells and organisms to toxic stimuli, you actually increase the health or improve the health of that organism. Mm. And essentially what's happening there is if you imagine, again, that pleasure pain balance, you're starting out with a level balance and now you intentionally expose yourself, myself, ourselves to toxic or painful stimuli, exercise is immediately toxic to cells, freezing cold temperatures, like, you know, jumping into a lake or taking an ice cold uh, shower, that's immediately toxic to cells. Other many other things that we can do in, you know, mild to moderate doses. And what essentially happens is uh, when you do that, then the gremlins will hop on the pleasure side to try to restore homeostasis. They'll stay on until you're tilted to the side of pleasure. And over time, you'll reset your balance to the side of pleasure, effectively changing your hedonic set point so that, you know, just not being in pain, is like, oh, great, you know, I'm feeling wonderful. And even just a tiny little bit of pleasure is, is very, very reinforcing. So, I mean, you can just take again, food is a, is a good analogy if you haven't eaten for more than a day or even a number of days and someone gives you like a little bit of broccoli with maybe a tiny bit of salt on it, that is going to taste absolutely delicious. If they, if you're a coffee drinker and they give you coffee with half nap, you're going to feel like you just mainlined heroin or something, (laughs) right? Because you've, it's just all relative.
0: Okay. And, And so if someone was like going through, like even something as extreme as heroin withdrawal, if you could get them on a treadmill and in an ice bath, and you know, fasting or something like that. I guess that would be better.
1: Absolutely, and there's data to support that. So there's a wealth of data showing that exercise um, basically decreases the intensity and duration of withdrawal from addictive drugs like opioids, Mm -hmm. cannabis, cocaine, nicotine, so that in early withdrawal, when people are trying to quit their drug and their gremlins are camped out on the pain side and they're slammed over there, if they engage in exercise that will encourage some of those gremlins to switch sides and it will get them back to baseline homeostasis faster. Um, so yeah, that, that's exactly right. So in early recovery, when patients ask me, well, what can I do when I'm really craving? I mean, there are a wide number of things they can do. They can, you know, if they're in AA or NA, they can call their sponsor. Um, you know, they can, uh, meditate. They can, there's a lot of stuff they can do, but one of the things that's counterintuitive that works is they can take an ice cold shower or immerse their faces in a bucket of ice water, or they can do, you know, 25 sit-ups or go on a run. And that, that really helps.
0: Yeah, this is, this is really interesting to me because um, like that in particular, where I think a lot of people in the throes of addiction uh, tend to look for like existential reasons or like reasons in their past for why they're, they're doing these behaviors. And oftentimes those are like, maybe those analyses are helpful, but it doesn't seem like it's the primary driver mm-hmm where like um, I've talked about this on the show before, but there was a a serial killer who called into Howard Stern once and they confirmed that he was a a killer because he had access to facts that the police hadn't released, et cetera. And he said that the reason he stopped killing was because his car broke down for a month. He he didn't have access to transportation to facilitate these killings. And so he was just able to step away from it for enough time where I, I guess his tolerance or whatever went down And I mean, does that, is that on any level, does that give you hope or is it disheartening to see just how, um, I don't know, like lizard brain we are?
1: (laughs) Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So first of all, um, I mean, part of the reason that I think people spend too much time trying to figure out why they're using addictive drugs or why they're addicted is because the mental health profession has encouraged that to a fault. Um, So there are many doors into addiction, you know, trauma, poverty, unemployment, all kinds of stressors, uh, co-occurring mental illness, all of those things increase the risk of somebody trying an addictive drug and getting addicted to that drug, but you can have the perfect life and you can get addicted to drugs. Why? Because they're addictive, because they change the brain, because the physiology becomes its own driver. Addiction is its own primary progressive disease. You don't need to look for another reason behind it. And I think um, spending too much time doing that, especially in early recovery, is not helpful because ultimately you know as one of my patients said you know insight is the booby prize you can understand why you do something but until you change the behavior and change your brain um, you know, you're, you're not going to get out of the vortex of addiction. I think it's really important to communicate that because otherwise people won't, they'll keep, lo- you know, looking, well, why do I do it? And the serial killer, I mean, you know, I don't know enough of the details of that particular situation to really comment, but basically this idea of like, well, I don't have access to my drug because I don't have a car. So therefore it was easier for me to stop my drug. And in the early pandemic times, I had so many patients who for the first time got into recovery from their addiction or got into recovery and were able to stay in recovery. Why? Because they couldn't go out, right? They weren't walking in the supermarket in the liquor aisle. They weren't passing their favorite bar. They weren't meeting up at raves with their friends using a million different drugs. They were at home. Um, And so, you know, the, the impact and the power of the environment is something that I think we underestimate in general uh, when we think about mental health and and the and sort of the cycle of maladaptive behaviors.
0: See, that, that's curious to me because a lot of people said that during the pandemic there was a like skyrocketing overdoses, etc. Do you? I guess it sounds like the picture is a little bit more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, I think it's really, it was sort of of like a musical chairs, like some people, you know, when the music stopped, found a chair and other people didn't. Mm. So clearly, um, some people really suffered, you know, during the COVID and the pandemic. And first of all, people who got COVID and got really sick and died, that's terrible. Right. But in terms of the population, you know, that I treat uh, people with addiction, it was really a bimodal kind of phenomenon, people who live alone and who had then less access to, let's say, a residential treatment facility or in person AA meetings, those people fared worse. And overall, it's true, um, drug overdoses went up. But drug overdoses were generally have been tre- generally trending up for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl has completely penetrated the illicit drug market. Fentanyl is 5,200 times more potent than morphine, it's also more lethal. So there are lots of reasons. And then you have people in isolation. So they're using an isolation. So they're, you know, they're, they're more likely to overdose. Um, so there are lots of reasons why a subset of people with addiction got, got worse. Plus you've got everybody a lot closer to their refrigerator, not leaving the couch. So yes, in terms of gaining weight, drinking a little more alcohol, but I, I can tell you it's really true that among a subset of individuals Uh, COVID was a complete blessing, um, because it gave them the, the constant triggers for using decreased and people were able to get into a kind of sustained recovery that they hadn't been able to enjoy at any other point in their life.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I can just say personally, like I was, um, I was trapped in Bali, not a bad place to be trapped in. (laughs) Um, but, uh, all like, you know, any kind of drug except for alcohol is, is very illegal there. They take it very seriously. Um. And I stopped, like, I, I don't, uh, now I don't drink alcohol, caffeine, weed, anything. And that's, I was there for four months, really just not doing it. And part of it was like doing these like 30 day challenges of abstaining. Right. Um, but yeah, the total absence of it w- was huge. Yeah. And why then are so many rehabs unsuccessful? Because they, there seems like they're trying to engineer that, but failing.
1: So a couple things, the, the, there is with addiction in particular, I think there's sort of like what you read in the media and then what's really true. So what what you read in the media that rehabs don't work is really unfair to rehabs. I can tell you as an addiction medicine specialist, I would be nowhere without uh, you know residential treatment facilities that I can refer my patients to who are just not able to stop on their own in their environment.
0: Mm.
1: They have to go somewhere else where they don't have access to their drugs. So you went to Bali, that was your, you know, four month rehab, right. you know, that's essentially what rehab is and it, it works. It yeah. absolutely works, but we don't have a lot of data. There aren't good data to know. So it's easy to say rehabs don't work, um, you know, cause we don't have data. So you can say rehabs don't work. I can say they work, but I can tell you as, as somebody who treats this population, they're invaluable for those that subset of individuals who's, Disease is so severe that they can't stop on their own. They need a contained environment where they don't have access to drug. Now it is true that the relapse rates when people come out and try to reintegrate into the world are really high. Um, And my guess is they're on the order of 50%, which sounds bad, but if you look at treatment rates in response to any mental illness, whether it's generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, major depression, our response rates are about 50%, all comers, all treatments. So that's not really that bad. I mean, a 50% response rate, that's pretty good. You Mm. know, and the more times people go around and try to stop, you know, the more likely they are to hopefully get get into recovery. Um, So I I think lately there's been like a lot of negative press about 12 step groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, people who don't really understand uh, those groups and how they work and and who they'll benefit and who they won't. and also rehab, you know, a residential, residential treatment facilities, you know, th- there are some terrible rehabs out there, but there are also some really fantastic rehabs that are run really well, are very evidence-based and that absolutely save lives.
0: And is there like an ideal, I mean, it's, it's probably not one size fits all, but is there roughly like an ideal amount of time to sort of like sort of force abstinence before people have the tools to be able to like live on their own?
1: Yeah. So minimum 30 days, 30 days is just about the average amount of time it takes for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off of the pain side of the balance for your brain to get the memo that, Oh, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting my dopamine from outside anymore. I better start to upregulate and make my own again and to re- reassert baseline homeostasis. And, you know, there are a, a, you know a couple of data points showing that, but in my clinical work, I, I see that again and again. So that's why rehabs on average are about 30 days. If you look at outcome studies with physicians who develop addiction, many of them are mandated to go to like a 90 day rehab and their outcomes are even better. Um, You know, speculation on why that is, it's possible that 90 days, I mean, first of all, the more time you have absence, the more time your brain has to heal, the better chance you have of, of maintaining your recovery. That's just sort of common sense, but there's actually data showing that 90 days, is probably better than 30 days. Um, and in physicians in particular, but that again, maybe because a lot of times physicians have a lot to fight for, You know, they, they wanna get their practice back. They wanna get their license back. So they're very, very motivated to, to get into and stay into recovery because it's their livelihood and their identity.
0: Okay, so a number of questions there. For, first off, I wanted to address something you said earlier where you said the drugs are addictive. Um, right. are, are you familiar with uh, Carl Hart from- uh, yeah. He, he believes uh, he's, you know, uh, I believe he's an addiction specialist at Columbia. Um, and he believes he's talked openly. So I'm not, you know, telling any tales out of school, uh, but he's talked openly about like using heroin and cocaine and believes that most of the uh, addiction is uh, related to like stress in the environment and that, you know, he's able to do it without uh, you know, uh, having addiction, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, h- how do you feel about this?
1: So a couple things without any comment on him or his particular use, of just uh, yep. you know, speaking to my clinical experience. Um, I believe, so the, 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 sort of narrative for a long time in addiction medicine was that the only definition of, of recovery was abstinence. And that, you know, once an addict, always an addict, you know, in AA, they talk about having an allergy to alcohol. Um, but what we're finding is that for a, a small sliver of individuals who have met criteria for addiction, the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others, that with a lot of effort, some of those people after a period of abstinence, at least 30 days, are able to go back to using drugs in moderation. So do I think it's possible that people can, with enormous effort, um, you know, use even very addictive and illegal drugs like heroin in moderation? Yeah, I believe that. Um, But I also know it's a very slippery slope and that many people who believe they're using in moderation without consequences, if you were to poll their friends and family members and colleagues, uh, you would very quickly uncover that there are consequences and they are not seeing them uh, because when we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard uh, to see true cause and effect. And there's this whole aspect of denial. That's very, very strong uh, where we don't really see the impact until we've stopped. And so th- th- those are, those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and then on the topic of abstinence, what about for things like, you know, using your cell phone, which, appears to you know cause like dopamine to be triggered in the brain um like the sort of wheel down when you you're scrolling twitter or whatever is has been compared to a roulette wheel by the people who designed those features Um, is it possible to live abstinent from those things or is any exposure to it sort of tipping the balance
1: right well as i as I talk about in my book, Dopamine Nation, this is why the conversation—we have to have this conversation about uh, moderation. Um, not just because there are people who are addicted to alcohol who are wanting to go back to using moderation, uh, but also because there are these digital drugs that are completely uh, interwoven into our everyday lives that we cannot simply. Abstain from. We have to develop a healthy relationship with this technology. We all, I think, are struggling to moderate our consumption of these digital drugs. So um, yes, we, we, we have to moderate. We can, I believe we can moderate. I believe we are collectively and individually figuring out now how to do that. Also thinking about who's responsible for that, right? The individuals, obviously, we we have responsibility, but also. You know, the companies who make and profit from these digital drugs, the federal government, the schools, everybody's got to kind of step up as we recognize that digital consumption can very easily get out of hand, right. that TikTok is intrinsically addictive, that yeah. that kind of v- short clip video one after another is just a complete black hole. i um, and that, you know, most of us, I will be able to figure out, okay, how can I, you know, integrate TikTok into my life or not, so that I don't, you know, totally ruin my life. But a subset of individuals will fall prey to that, especially if you think about children, um, and, and they won't be able to pull themselves out. So we as a society need to really, you know, be thoughtful about this.
0: I'm really curious the effect on children because I, I think with a variety of just like internet stimulus. I mean, I can speak for myself and for most like people I know my age, their first exposure to pornography was when they're in like between third to fifth grade. Yeah. Which way too young.
1: Right.
0: Um, and not only that saw way more extreme videos than like the average porn viewer in the seventies or eighties. So do you think, have there been any like long-term studies on the effect of these things on the brains of children?
1: Well, uh, I mean, first of all, we know that, that the developing brain is more vulnerable to addiction more broadly, the earlier you you're exposed to an addictive drug, the more likely you are to go on to develop an addiction that's been shown with alcohol and other drugs, things like pornography, pornography is absolutely a drug that has become more potent and more accessible over time. As you just talked about, you know, you used to be, you know, you had to like steal a playboy from your friend's father's, you know, between the mattresses or something. Now, any child can go on the internet, um, Google, uh, you know, Pornhub and, and immediately be exposed to incredibly graphic images. Usually that's combined with masturbation. Masturbation leads to orgasm, which is a, leads to a huge flooding of uh, neurotransmitters like dopamine in the brain. So, you know, this is a very potent drug. And what we're seeing clinically is rapidly rising rates of particularly um, men um, coming in with very severe and debilitating pornography addiction to the point where people are non-functional, not not able to go to school, not able to go to work, depressed, suicidal. So pornography and compulsive masturbation, sex addiction more broadly is is a huge and exploding problem in our society. And really under-recognized and also associated with an enormous amount of shame because, of course, we're living in a, a hashtag me too moment when, you know, th- this idea of, of men as predators has, you know, uh, th- this is combined with the growing pornography problem has has cre- really created a complicated landscape.
0: Oh, yeah. I have a friend of mine who's like a middle school teacher and sometimes his students jokingly will quote like pornography of things like what are you doing, stepbrother? It's like, Oh my God. Like, and he has to pretend that he just like, doesn't hear these things. Right. Right. But like,
1: these are like 12 year olds. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course they're naturally curious, you know, they're naturally curious. And then, you know, there's this, it's important to talk about drug of choice. Like, so I've had, you know, people with pornography and sex addiction who vividly remember their first exposure to pornography and noting that, you know, their friends were excited, but could kind of, you know, after a little while, walk away, whereas he could not. It was absolutely his drug of choice. Just like, you know, people with alcohol addiction will say from my first sip of alcohol, I knew I was in trouble. You know, so this kind of thing that, you know, what, what releases a lot of dopamine in your reward pathway may not release a lot in mine and vice versa, but when we find our drug of choice, if it is plentiful and if it is potent and if it is immediately accessible on our phone, we're in trouble, right? We're in trouble. Uh, so we need to really talk openly about that. We, we need to, you know, give people tools, how to handle that. We need to talk about it with kids.
0: Yeah. And and you mentioned, um, pornography in the context of this me too, me too era. Um, and also in the context of sort of like a very, you know, among some parts, uh, like a sex positive movement where like, I have women friends of mine who are like, you know, like, I think it'd be great if like more pornography was made for women and all these things. And guys just tend to have a different experience of this. I had a neuroscientist on the show, Nicole Prowse, Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but no. she um, she has talked her explanation for uh, pornography and what she, she doesn't feel that porn is an addiction. Um, and she feels that the reason that men tend to have a greater stress with it is because men in general tend to have a higher sex drive. And so um, when they're using pornography, it's like you you have a higher sex drive, but less access to like what you really want. And so there is like this discrepancy that produces shame and feelings of inadequacy. Um, Do you feel like that's a legitimate explanation?
1: Well, I mean, I think we have plenty of data that you know, sex drive is a spectrum within individuals. There are some men who have very low sex drive, asexual men, right? But that in general, you know, that bell curve is shifted to, you know, to the right for men compared to women as a population. Mm -hmm. But I disagree that, um, that pornography is not addictive to say it more simply. It's very clear that pornography is addictive and that you know it's addictive for women as well, and it's highly reinforcing, which is why people return to it. Um, and that you know, the the if you look at the natural history of addiction, whether it's to a substance or a behavior like pornography, uh, and um, and masturbation, what you see is a very similar pattern over time. People start out for one of two reasons: to have fun or to solve a problem. The problem can be anxiety, depression, insomnia, inattention, boredom, loneliness, you name it. Yeah. They encounter a drug and it works for them. What does that mean? That means it releases dopamine in their reward pathway and it makes them feel good. And it temporarily solves that problem. Only then do they go back to it. You wouldn't go back to it if it didn't work. It works. And it's the fact that it works that makes them return to it. And then over time, because of this pleasure-pain balance and tolerance and neuroadaptation, it stops working as well, right? And then you need more. You need to spend longer doing it, or you need more potent forms. Now, you know, it used to be maybe it was like vanilla toast pornography. And now you're looking at, you know, more, let's say, extreme types of pornography because. You can't, it doesn't, you need that more potent form. I mean, then maybe you go from pornography to, you know, real live people on chat rooms and then you're actually meeting up with them, right? Right. So that's the natural progression, just like people start out, you know, at a kegger and it's just beer and now they add vodka and now it's, you know, vodka enemas. I mean, you know, that same kind of progression, whatever the drug Mm -hmm. is. So
0: yeah, it, it's interesting the problem solving thing. I remember the first time I ever watched porn. Afterwards, I, I was a, I think I might have been like ten or eleven, and I literally remember the first thought that came into my mind was, "Wow,
1: I can do this anytime that I'm sad."
0: Right? <laughs> exactly.
1: Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and that's beautifully observed, and because that's exactly right you have all the equipment that you need right on your body. And if you don't have porn ready while you watch porn, you can, you have your imagination, which is also also what makes pornography one one of the very hardest addictions to overcome. I think because as one one of my uh, patients said, the bar, you know, the equivalent of the bar is in my brain. Right. So that's tricky. Yeah. Right. So now you really have to not let yourself uh, engage in, you know, that kind of fantasy life. And that's Mm -hmm. That's hard.
0: Yeah. Um, the uh, last question I'll ask on the subject of pornography because I don't—I don't, I don't want to make it entirely about that, but it is right. very relevant. Uh,
1: and it's important, you know, yeah. and it's hidden, and it's a growing problem, and it's—it's it's the reason that I open my book with a case of of a, of a man with a very a scientist, Stanford scientist, with a very serious pornography addiction because I think people need to know they're not alone.
0: Right. Yes. And this—and this certainly does come up in dopamine nation, um, and so I, I'm. I'm curious, what um, uh, there, there's a movement online of like the no masturbation.
1: Right, movement. no fap.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what do you think of that? Is that even like achievable or is that something that um, is like, I mean, I don't know. What, do, do you have any broad thoughts about the no fap movement?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, so the first intervention that we do for people with pornography and compulsive masturbation addiction is say, we say no orgasms for a month, right? Mm -hmm. No organ because we have to reset the balance. And and so the no fat movement is a recognition of what compulsive masturbation um, does to people's brains and to their physiology and how destructive it is and how it's not part of a healthy life and that you need to take those energies and channel them someplace else, which isn't to say that all pornography is bad or that all masturbation is bad, but when you're compulsively doing it every day, multiple times a day, you know, as a way to not feel sad, you know, there's a problem there because the truth is the way that pleasure pain balance, you will feel sadder and sadder and sadder. So the idea is to stop it in order to reset the reward pathways. And what happens when people are able to do that, not having any orgasms with themselves or or others for four weeks, they come back less anxious, less depressed, sleeping better, more energy, more feeling better about themselves. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, it's a very interesting movement. And I think it speaks to the ways in which people are Kind of supporting each other um, in the internet um, towards healthier practices it's fascinating to me because it's basically a form of celibacy extreme celibacy right um, that people are happening upon and realizing that they feel better many of them uh, when they adhere to it and yet it comes in this secular package right it's not attached to any vice or virtue framework it's not because it's a sin you know i mean Sex in the Christian Church has been, you know, it's it's a it's a very, uh, let's say, um, it's a very important part of (laughs) Christian teaching, right? And now what's happening is people are sort of adopting some of those teachings, but not in that religious framework, which I also find interesting.
0: Yes, I I went to Catholic prep school, so.
1: Okay, so there you there you know (laughs) yeah right to grow grow hair on your hands and yeah (laughs) that's exactly.
0: so I, I'm curious because uh, we talk about, uh, we talk about in, in dopamine nation, how this, this easy access to pleasure. We've been talking about in the context of pornography, but it's, it's a, a huge spectrum. Um, many activities we can get that from. And there might be some people who hear that and say, you know, hey, I have crazy student loans. I'm working a dead end retail job. Uh, I'm worried, I'm terrified about a climate apocalypse. How, how dare you say that my life has too much pleasure?
1: Right. You know? mm-hmm.
0: How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that when people have a lot of stress in their lives, they have jobs that are not rewarding, they're in conflicted relationships, that it's hard. You know, life is very hard and turning to this substance or a behavior as a kind of respite from the rest of their lives is a very common and human uh, ref- reflex, right? We reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. And we do that without even thinking. It takes a cognitive load to do the opposite, right? To avoid pleasure and approach pain. We're wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. But what, what is the key message here, which I try to get out to people, is that the continued consumption of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors makes us more unhappy, and it does that in an iterative process over time by changing our hedonic set point so that ultimately we are actually in this dopamine deficit state where we don't enjoy anything. And we're just using our drug to kind of like, you know, keep keep it, things even go back to homeostasis. And so that's the tricky part because we don't see it as it's happening, right? We don't, we don't make the link between smoking pot every day and being anxious, depressed and not being able to sleep. Because what we're remembering is that the first time we smoked pot, it alleviated those symptoms. But over time, all we're doing is relieving withdrawal from our last use. We're not actually treating the underlying thing. And that's because of neuroadaptation and the drive toward homeostasis. So that's why that intervention of the dopamine fast or not using for a month is so important because you reset reward pathways and you're able to look back and go, oh, wow. I'm feeling a lot better now, right? And the substance or behavior that I thought was giving me some relief in my life was actually making things worse.
0: There are, on that note, what what I find interesting is that there are definitely experiences I've had, and I've talked to other people who have had, where if you're, you know, when I was in college and smoking a ton of pot, I would, when I smoked, I would realize, man, why did I do this? Like, I I don't like this. This is not fun. And this is causing is that, and people saying with like masturbation afterwards, they have this clarity of like, why did I do that? Right. Is that because it brings you, you're, you're in this state of like sadness. It brings you briefly maybe up to like homeostasis and you can sort of see clearly before you you dip back down.
1: It could be. It's, it's interesting. I, I think what it is. Yeah. I think that's what it is that essentially there are just those moments of clarity where, well, first of all, what happens is you're, you're walking around in this dopamine deficit state and the reflex and urge to restore homeostasis is overwhelming mm-hmm. such that our ability to recall how the drug really makes us feel, we don't have access to it. All we have is the euphoric recall of how it used to make us feel before it stopped working. Wow. So when you're in this state and you have euphoric recall, The drive to get the drug and use is enormous. But once you've used the drug, you can see that its impact is to just add one more gremlin onto you. So right, you're right. So not only do you go back down right after you use it, or maybe even in the middle of using it, you go back down further. And Mm -hmm. that's the moment of clarity. It's it's not up here. It's like, oh crap, now I've got another gremlin on the. Now I'm even deeper in the hole.
0: Yeah. Are there any... Is there hope for anybody who's pain, pleasure, balance is out of whack in the sense that are, are there any, is it possible to just like break your, your sort of reward system where you can't go back to normal?
1: So in general, there's enormous plasticity such that with sustained abstinence, the vast majority of people can return to a level balance or baseline homeostasis. Um, And then, then it becomes a difficulty of maintaining that balance and not returning uh, to addictive use every once in a while, you know, we, we, we see somebody with severe addiction who just, it just seems like their balance is stuck on the pain side and they can't get over. And then that's when we use certain medications to try to help level them out. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but in general, with enough abstinence, the vast majority of people, if they can stop using for long enough, they can restore homeostasis.
0: What, uh, what medications?
1: Well, for opioid addiction, we'll give opioids like methadone or buprenorphine. They don't get people high. What they do is they level the balance and allow homeostasis to, re- you know, to baseline homeostasis to be restored, so that people aren't using all their energy, trying to resist the urge to use, and then they can, you know, do other recovery work, or sometimes we use antidepressants, you know, as a way to kind of restore homeostasis or non-addictive sleep aids, that sort of thing to help, help people.
0: Are all forms of dopamine uh, activities that produce dopamine created equal? Like, is there a difference between like natural and processed sugars here? Like, you know, is is sex in some way better for you than watching porn or whatever example you wanna use?
1: I think at the end of the day, dopamine is just a currency. So dopamine is dopamine. The difference is how much and how fast, and also what's your drug of choice. So the, 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 more dopamine that's released by a drug and the faster that drug releases dopamine, the more likely you are to get addicted. Cause it's this sudden, you know, tilt to the side of pleasure that really is sort of the source of addiction. Cause it's got you and you're corrected down to the side of pain. And then you're, you know, there's this incredible urge to use again. Um, also again, this, this phenomenon of drug of choice, which is not really well understood, but is you know, pretty interesting, like why it is that for one person, it's pornography and for another person, it's cupcakes. Um, you know, we don't really know, but, um, but the the marriage between like a really, really, really potent cupcake, um, and a person who's, uh, you know, who's prone to that, that's where you get into this cycle.
0: Um, there's an example. I wish I knew the, the details offhand, but I'm just sort of recalling this. My friend's dad is a neurologist and he talked about an experience, uh, of some other, um, in some hospital, there were these p- patients with severe pain. And so they had, um, some button they could press that would stimulate a part of their brain that was associated with pleasure or reward. And when they took the button away, patients were like really going hard to explain why they needed the button and all <laughs> that. And it was um, it was a case where uh, my friend's dad was like, "Yeah, just clearly, like this is like instant reward satisfaction. Clearly, right. you just don't give people that button." Um, but then it, it raises an interesting question of we we do have this reward system in place. Um, clearly, it evolved for a reason. Um, there is certainly got to be a healthy way of using it. Um, is it just a matter of devising like much more interesting paths to satisfying this reward circuit, is it uh, only having moderate pleasure occasionally? What is like the ideal balance?
1: So uh, I think that the the first the first thing to realize is that if you pay for your dopamine upfront by doing the work to get it or tolerating pain such that you're getting your dopamine, not directly by pressing on the pain side, like that deep brain stimulator was doing in the example that you indicated, or that cocaine or methamphetamine or nicotine, they they essentially release a flood of dopamine right in the synapse. Instead, what you're doing is you're pressing on the pain side and letting your body's natural re-regulating response to that Be your source of dopamine, that's potentially a much better and more enduring source of dopamine. So in other words, you're getting your dopamine from working really hard every day to learn and master a difficult skill, and then, you know, getting the reward slowly over time through an iterative process by doing the work, or you are going for a run or going for a bike ride or going for a swim, even though you don't really like it, because you know that slowly what happens with exercise is dopamine levels slowly rise over the course of the exercise. And then remain elevated for hours afterwards before Mm -hmm. coming back down to baseline you never go into that dopamine deficit state or ice cold water or things like that that's the first thing the second thing if you're going to indulge in intoxicants which make dopamine spike suddenly and then you go into dopamine free fall below baseline your dopamine deficit state before going back up to uh you know baseline homeostasis if you're going to use intoxicants, use them infrequently and leave enough time in between for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that you can restore homeostasis. What you don't want to do is slowly over time, accumulate gremlins on the pain side of the balance such that you've changed your hedonic set point and you don't even see it.
0: Mm-hmm. On the subject of intoxicants, the one sort of drug where I've never afterwards felt like, oh my God, I, I'm going through withdrawal or like why did I do that are psychedelics um is there is it possible there's some like difficulty up front in terms of like the come up that that satisfies that or uh, am I just missing the the crash or how does this fit into this uh reward framework? yeah
1: so so there's there's a lot of you know uh sort of talk out there that psychedelics are not addictive. And the idea is that they, they develop almost instant tolerance such that the, the, the lore is that you, you couldn't repeat them because it, it wouldn't work. But the truth is that people can get addicted to psychedelics, that there is, you know, whether it's, you're talking about mushrooms or MDMA, there are blue Mondays, people do have comedowns, they are more depressed you know, that you didn't have it is, is one thing, but many, many people do Mm. have a come down, but even if you don't subjectively feel a come down, what is the nature of addiction? It's using a substance to alter your mental status in pursuit of some other thing that you want. Right. Mm. Um, So, you know, we do see people get addicted to psychedelics who repeatedly use them, you know, every week, every day, and who end up in a very, very bad place. So it's, it's not true that psychedelics aren't addictive. It would, it's impossible to find something that has such a huge mental impact that isn't, isn't going to be addictive for some people.
0: Is it possible that certain substances are like less prone to addiction in the same way that like maybe Uh, Like there are Buddhist terrorists, but it seems like that religion (laughs) lends itself less to the pursuit of terrorism.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, again, I think it's, it depends on the individual's physiology. I will tell you, I will never, ever get addicted to alcohol. It just doesn't do anything for me. I will never, ever get addicted to caffeine. It doesn't wake me up. Pornography, romance novels, easily addicted to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's that combination of like your particular lock and key, you know, with that, with that particular drug. So I don't think, I don't think we can say, Oh, this drug is not addictive. And that drug is, or this drug is really addictive. And this one's like, it depends on the person meets the drug. And if that's your drug, you know, it's going to be more addictive than, than a drug that other people culturally might think of as super duper addictive.
0: Um, I I want to talk about a little bit, this, this idea of a dopamine detox. Yeah. Because we're we're talking about all these, you know, uh, withdrawals and addictions, et cetera. Um, And then there are, you know, some people may not identify with alcohol addiction, but everybody has a cell phone. Just about everybody I've talked to has had some, you know, they've had to go through some processing of what social media means in their life, whether it's abstaining, uh, et cetera. Um, Is this, for real dopamine detox. Is that even possible? I mean, I've seen YouTube videos about it and I I don't know what to think.
1: Well, I mean, you know, what I recommend for patients who are struggling with any kind of addiction, whether it's a substance or behavior is a dopamine fast or an abstinence trial. The idea being that you need to abstain from your drug for long enough to reset reward pathways. And that when you do that, you can come to more modest rewards and actually enjoy them again and also see true cause and effect between your drug and the impact that it's having on your life, which you can't do when you're using it. So I do really recommend it. Now the Silicon Valley dopamine detox is like you go into a cave for a week and then you right. emerge and like every leaf is sparkling. So that's not really the work that we're doing. I mean, we're dealing with people coming and I'm addicted to pornography I'm addicted to alcohol or cannabis or you know, whatever it is. And then we say, okay, let's cut that out for a week. Maybe it's a particular video game. Okay. Let's, you know, you're not going to not be on your device, but you're not going to play video games or maybe it's just YouTube, like no uh, digital entertainment for a month so that people can reset their reward pathways. You know what, Duncan, I actually have a meeting that I have to go to now. I feel badly. I thought we were just doing an hour. I'm really enjoying the conversation, but
0: no, me, me too. Um, I, I loved having this conversation. Uh, I'll let you go and get to your meeting. Uh, the book is Dopamine Nation. Um, I, I hope if, if you write another book, we get a chance to talk again. or yeah. uh, Whatever the occasion is, um, really love your work and thanks oh, so much. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Well, you're you're welcome. Uh, thanks for sharing. That always makes it, you know, more real and more meaningful for for other people sort of hear about you know, opening up a little bit and sharing your own experience. And I really, I thought your questions were great. So thanks so much.
0: Fantastic. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Anna Lemke and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.